Hello, my dearest peace lovers and peacemakers. This is Sarah Jamshidi. Welcome to Peace Mindedly, a podcast show featuring peaceful bridge makers. You know the deal. You can find us in many social media channels on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, YouTube, and on many podcast channels, including iHeartRadio, Google Play, and, and much more. So very easy to find us. Peace Mindedly, the podcast show. It's noon on Tuesday, the third Tuesday in February, and you are watching and listening to Peace Mindedly. On today's show, we are speaking to a poet, someone who is deeply skilled at using words to help his audience comprehend deeper meanings. Poetry is often about conveying a meaning without altering the word directly. And in many parts of the world, including Iran and the, the Middle East, oftentimes speaking directly is, is not an option. Any form of speech against authorities or even an offhand reference to love and social issues can be interpreted negatively by those in power. Those who speak out often pay a very big price. In these circumstances, poetry or speaking indirectly can be only way to communicate a message. Due to the indirect yet powerful nature of the words, poets can find themselves defending basic freedoms, oftentimes, in my opinion, basic freedoms. Our guest today is one of those individuals. Podrick Otoma is a profoundly engaging public speaker. He has worked with groups to explore the themes of story and conflict and their relationship with religion and violence. Between 2014 and 2019, Podrick was the leader of the Corimila community, Ireland's oldest peace and reconciliation community. A poet, theologian, traveler, and speaker, Podrick is the host and producer of Poetry Unbound with On Being Studio. I am bringing Podrick on the screen. Hello, hello. Hi, Sarah. So good to be with you. It's absolutely marvelous to have you here in our show. It's an honor. His poems have been featured on Poetry Island Review, Academy of American Poets, Harvard Review, and much more. He is a frequent speaker on BBC, NPR, and other international networks. His latest book, I do have the book with me. I read the book, and I quite enjoyed the book. In the Shelter, Finding a Home in the World was recently published in paperback. Okay, Podrick, I am so excited. I mean, for a first start, I, I, I am curious to know, in your opinion, what is the difference between poems and prose? Well, poetry is a certain form of setting words to music. It is a certain attention making to the musicality within the context of language. And the hope is, is that we can um, listen to the underlying music, listen to the rhythms, listen to the heartbeat um, that's in a poem. So I suppose that's the particular way that I think of the distinction. Listen prose, to the can be, prose can be quite de descriptive and prose can be very poetic too. So there's a huge overlap. Um, I don't think there's any clear way to make a, a boundary between the two. But in general, I suppose, um, poetry is attentive to its own music. And that might be a music, a visual music of form, but it also might be an auditory music. Here's my, at least my assumption of how the 
written word has been created. I always feel and think that the first form of communication in the world on the planet was music and the music, the, the sound of wind, the sound of water, the sound of particular, and then transformed to words. And then we came to create, to create the music that you are talking about. So could we create this kind of musicality uh, of setting words together without poetry? Well, I think it might have been the primal experience. Um, I suppose one of the first things we either feel or hear is the sound of a heartbeat in the womb. Um, the heartbeat of the child, the heartbeat of the, the mother. And that, in a certain sense, introduces us to the elemental music of the human experience. Maybe everything else is trying to catch up in the echo of that. Maybe poetry and music and song and film and books and every conversation is trying to recreate that first intimate experience of whether heard or whether felt in the, in the body, um, that rhythmic communication. Rhythmic communication. So we are talking about womb and body and heartbeat and all of those. Is this the first home for us? I suppose it is. Uh, the, I, I suppose it is, yeah. Um, not remembered, but nonetheless necessary. And um, the question of the experience in that way, I mean, psychoanalysis has spent many decades now trying to consider about the experience of that home and how long it takes us in a life to unpack it. And not only that first home, but then also the subsequent homes. Subsequent homes. So what are the difference between that original home and the home that you're trying to find? Well, it depends on trauma. <laughs> I mean, we're talking a lot about conflict, and I know, Sarah, you spend a lot of time thinking about peace. And I suppose it does depend as to what the experience of home is. Um, I grew up in a very loving family, a family of um, six children. There wasn't a lot of money, um, and certainly there was um, surrounding us experiences of violence and experiences of conflict. And I suppose maybe I was overly sensitive, but certainly the violence of all of that lodged its way into me. I suppose I went to desperate measures to try to belong to religion. And often that was inflicting a certain violence on myself. And um, I think lots of this book, you know, in the shelter is, is an attempt to try to think about what does it mean to find a home in the world when I had been um, enculturated into a religious devotion that was suspicious of the world. Um, for me, this is a book of journeying from the halls of religion into the secular hillways and the secular meadows and paying attention to the sanctity and the dignity of secular voices speaking about the power of language and the human experience. But we cannot, so many questions I have right now. <laughs> uh, it seems that you went through religion to land into a, this kind of secular, more independent form of belonging. I really like the way you say that, going through religion. I suppose religion went through me too. <laughs> okay, tell um, me. Well, I, I, I think maybe I'm, maybe I'm a good Catholic or maybe I'm a naive Catholic. I, I had a very particular kind of submissive relationship to the question of authority. I, I think I trusted authority or I even trusted things that said they were authorities, even when they weren't. And I was desperate to find a sense of participation. I'm not naturally a person who wants to be on the edge or wants to be challenging. I was naturally a person who wanted to belong and wanted to fit in and wanted to work for the structure. 
and that didn't work. I'm I'm gay and I suppose I tried desperately um, to find a way to fit in, uh, putting up with exorcisms that were put on me and putting up with reparative therapies that were put on me and ways of speaking about the wide world that just seemed to me to be constrictive and suffocating. But I, I tried and tried and tried and eventually I became quite sick. Um, and partly, I mean, I did have a virus and I did have a very bad immune reaction to that virus. But part of me thinks, too, that the, the fact that my immune system wasn't able to fight back, I think all of that was a way within which my body was saying to me, you have not found a home in religion and you won't find a home in religion. You need to find a home in something that is less violent towards you. I haven't abandoned religion. I love the literature of religion. I spend a lot of time thinking about it. I think prayer is a secular kind of poem, um, you know, something where we take a desire and address it to a you, a, a sound we form in our throats. So I do find that I carry religion with me, but I'm not frightened of it anymore. Excellent. Podrick, talking about in, in a many sentence that you just you just was explaining, there was one particular word, which was violence. And I am very familiar with violence. I mean, I was I'm from Iran, revolution, war, covering war and all of those. Somehow you've experienced the, the particular kind of violence. And then you reached from violence to some some sort of peace. In my opinion, I always feel that in order to reach peace, you have to go through violence. Hmm. And I'm thinking whether or not this is the same experience for you. Yeah, I, I, I suppose I think of reaching peace as a continual exercise. It's like flexing a muscle. You, you never finally arrived. Peace is an approach that we hope to live in and from which we are constantly falling. Same with reconciliation, even forgiveness, if you want to use that word too. These are never, never final destinations. In a society that has known colonization or the deprivation of language or um, systematized violence or all of those plus more, um, what we know is that it can take as long as the violence was taking place in a systemic way. It can take as long after that for something called something reparative and the embodying into a culture of something safe. It can take as long after as it took before in order for that to become normalised. And so as a result, the idea that peace has arrived when a peace agreement is signed or when two people say, oh, I'm sorry, or any of these attempts, which are really good, they're fantastic starting points, but they are not final points. And we are constantly working at those. And I think it can be really convenient if you haven't been affected by violence, if you have been perhaps on the side of the oppressor and you think, hey, look, we had a weekend of commemoration last year. It was great, magnificent. We, we put an end, we put a full stop at the end of 100 years of systematized violence. Amazing. We're all reconciled now. It's a lovely beginning and thank God for it. I'm really glad it got there. But all that is, is the beginning of the next hundred years. And there can be, I think, a way within which we need to recognise that um, generations of violence will take generations of undoing. And nobody, whether it's a four-year presidential term or a five-year prime ministerial term, or whether it is a 10-year charitable project, nobody will put an end to that. What we need is a longer stretch of time to say there was a hundred years of violence. We need a hundred years of reparations, policy changes, gestures, lamentations, 
griefs, sadness, opportunities for victims to speak together about what they lost, opportunities to build and finding ways within which different people go to wherever they're drawn. And this, mm -hmm. I think, is the long standing work of peace. It's much okay. more demanding than violence. This is a wishful thinking and this is a wishful everything. According yeah. to the history, uh, the world only experienced no war only 76 years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then I am just yeah. I'm just reading a book called War and it's just yeah. What what yeah. I mean I I cut you off. What what do you want no, to no. say? Yeah, I, I love that you're saying it's wishful thinking. And that the question for me is, what do we wish for? Which is why I think prayer is an interesting thing. In French, pray, I mean, the English word French comes from the, the, sorry, the English word prayer comes from French, prier, to ask. And mm -hmm. so wishful thinking, we, we sometimes use that as a derogatory term to imply that somebody is being naive. And even the word naive also coming from French, meaning to be born. Everything has to be born. Everything is um, tender and fragile when it's born. I am all for wishful, naive thinking when it is considered the possibility of a small change in light of violence. If we can do small things, it might be that we can change our imagination to think about what larger things can come. Change our imagination. So within the shelter, what, what are you doing? that you you give us hope for changing the imagination? Well, I, I don't know. Partly for me, this is a question about what is the purpose of art? For me, I, I write, whether in prose or poetry, as an artist. And often in the role of art, it isn't so strategic or clear what my purpose is. I'm writing to save myself and I'm writing to exercise myself. And I'm writing to find a way, hopefully, where whoever reads this, two people or more, that we can find some echo with each other in a way to say that language can be sufficient for describing a world that we wish we didn't inhabit and mm -hmm. describing experiences that we wish we didn't carry with us. And that, I think, is an imaginative act. The world's great religious traditions all invent a God who has a deep interest in language. And therefore, I think what that shows us is that the world has for a very long time been invested in the creative possibilities and the imaginative possibilities of language. Language, possibilities, words. What are your, you just, uh, you just told me a, a few words that I think you are quite fond of. Reconciliation, forgiveness, pray, naivete, wishful thing. I mean, not wishful, but uh, expl explanation of a wishful thinking and all of those. But I would like to know if you have to pick three words, what are those? I know I, I'm putting on you on the spot, but what are the three words that you really, really love? I love the word knuckle uh, at the moment, you know, knuckle here. I think mm -hmm. it comes from the idea of a joint, a bend in a joint. Partly I love it for its sound. I think it's a beautiful sounding word, knuckle. Um, but I also love it because it involves the possibility of movement. I think that's a really interesting, I think that's a really interesting word. I do love the word encounter because that is more than just meeting. That is more than just talking or just listening. Encounter, I think, invites us into the possibility of something where it mightn't even be a radical 180 degree change, but somehow something changes or deepens or grows in encounter. And 
Um, imagination is another word that I also love because, again, I think imagination, maybe like naive, maybe like wishful thinking, is a word that we can associate with childishness. But I can't imagine a world without imagination. It is in the space of imagination that we begin to imagine our ways out of the rut that we find ourselves in. It is from imagination that we get great works of art. And it is from imagination that things that can't be controlled, like great works of literature or painting or music, those began in the imagination where somebody heard something that didn't exist yet and they followed it with their whole life, perhaps. What is your wildest imagination? <laughs> um, I don't know. I'm, I'm getting caught up in the word wildest. Or biggest or the most important. Or the most wishful. Well, so I have a wishful thinking that the British Empire would conduct a Truth and Reconciliation Commission about its hundreds of years of functioning. Not in any way to shame British people alive today. Most British people alive today are working hard, loving their families and friends. But what we do know is that the shape of the world has been, and the, the shape of the world, the shape of borders, international languages, etc., has been unalterably affected by European empire and in a particular way, I think, by British Empire. Absolutely. And I suppose that is um, that is a, a wild imagination that I have. Wouldn't that be fascinating if a 50 year reconciliation and truth commission was put into place? Maybe it wouldn't be called reconciliation because I understand sometimes the pain is too much to immediately pair truth and reconciliation together. But wouldn't that be an interesting thing for a former empire to do that on a grand scale? I'm going to ask a follow-up question, but here's my comment about what you just said. Maybe you've seen or you've heard about Outlander. It's a series on Netflix. I have heard about it, yeah. Yes, it. so it's about Ireland and about Scotland, about what the British Empire is doing basically against its uh, those people. The series is just so graphic and so brutal mm -hmm. of what is happening against these people that I could not watch more than episode four. I just okay. couldn't. Mm -hmm. And all of those are true. Because we're yeah. happening in Iran. So we had this kind of saying that whatever wrong happened in Iran, it's mm -hmm. British false. Mm -hmm. I think what you're saying is very important, yeah. reconciliation and some form of acknowledgement, like what yeah. they did in Canada with indigenous people, sure. like acknowledge that this really happened. I hope yeah. that uh, we could do it in the US and in many parts of the world. But here's my question. So what, what is the difference? between reconciliation, peace, and forgiveness? <laughs> well, first of all, they're all just words. Um, mm -hmm. And sometimes people use them interchangeably. Uh, you know, if you're to look up a dictionary or an etymological definition, of course, there are distinctions and we can go into those. But often I think when folks are using them, they use them somewhat interchangeably. Even if you think they shouldn't, people do. So peace and um, reconciliation and forgiveness. Reconciliation is a certain way within which a certain kind of relationship or warmth of affection is re-established after a troublesome event. Not everything should go to reconciliation. It's not always safe to go to reconciliation, but that doesn't mean that the only alternative is revenge or bitterness. Um, peace might be a way within which we find a way to say I'm safer and I'm beyond the possibility of that happening and there has been an acknowledgement and we choose to live far apart 
but without wishing revenge on each other. And I suppose I think I think of revenge as of forgiveness as a way within which we wish each other well. And again, that doesn't involve that I have to live next door to you or have you deeply in my my life or me to be in the life of somebody who I've who I've upset where we are not spending inordinate amount of times wishing evil on them. We are wishing them well, but perhaps also wishing them distance. And so those, I think, are some quick ways to look at these um, important ter- terms. Awesome. So I was reading the book. I read through 75% of the book. And then right at the beginning of the book, as I was reading reading it really took me to my own experience in Isfahan. Isfahan is a, a city resemblant against Rome. It's like an open-air giant museum. Absolutely Beautiful. gorgeous, gorgeous mm. city. And it was I've this, heard, yeah, yeah it's, um, it's, it was called UNESCO World Heritage Site. And then I was going to, uh, it was a beautiful mosque called Masjid Shah or King's Mosque. And you go there, you pass through a a few layers and passages and so forth. And then you arrive to a room. It's a prayer room. It's called Shabestan, like a blue Shabestan. It's like a blue prayer room. The shade of the blue, the feelings in the air, Everything in that room is so divine and so beautiful. And as I was reading, uh, you you were explaining Taze. Uh, I think it was at the where Eastern Eastern France, yeah, and Taze. then yeah. Taze, Okay, mm-hmm. and then and then in this uh, monastery that you were experiencing stillness, silence, and and divine presence. It was to me. It was just this kind of capturing my, I mean, taking me to that specific mm. place that I was in in Isfahan. Tell me about the mo- monastery. Tell me what happened there and what was your experience of being still. First of all, Sarah, it's just so lovely to hear you describe where your imagination took you into Isfahan, a memory, but also a synesthetic memory of color. And that color itself is its own memory. That's so beautiful. And color, a color of something like prayer or devotion or experience of the divine. That's, a, that's very moving to hear. Um, Taizé is a monastery that was set up in, um, in France by Brother Roger. Um, it is a Christian monastery that has very wide open doors to people of all practices and none. Um, there's a community of brothers and a community of sisters there. They welcome thousands of young people every year. They have a rhythm of prayer um, throughout the day and beautiful, simple harmonies that people sing along to. It's like taking a mantra from a text of a saint or a text of a psalm or something from a scripture and singing it over and over again um, with some words. Um, it is their it is their witness to a place of being a place of pilgrimage and recognizing the experience of life as pilgrimage, as well as I think their really wise caution about um, quick conversions. Teze is not interested in quick conversions. If I went there and wasn't religious and had an experience there and wished to speak to one of them to say, "How can I join you?" or "How can I become a co-religionist?" They'd say. Take, take this experience home. Reflect on it in the context of your ordinary life, because what you experience here is an invitation, 
but it's an invitation to your full life. So find a way to let this invitation be in partnership with your whole life. What was what was the invitation for you when you came back from Teze? The invitation for me was, I mean, I went there in distress. I, I'm gay and I was feeling like I didn't know how to come out and I thought I'd lose all my friends and some of that became true. Um, and I didn't know how to reconcile parts of my life with parts of my life. And it is it is almost impossible for me to put into words what the invitation was. Somehow it was an invitation of solace to say, there is a way of living your life where you will be okay with yourself. Not to say it'll be perfect, not to say any of that, but that there is a way of living your life where you'll be okay, where you will find a reconciliation. I didn't have it at that stage, but somehow some seed of an imagination came into me where I thought I can read in a certain way, I can believe in a certain way, I can question in a certain way, and I can find a home in silence, a certain kind of agnostic devotion where I could move away from the addiction to certitude and, and sit in an agnostic way within a tradition that is welcoming. And that home, was a great invitation. Great invitation and a home in silence. There was a home in silence, yeah. And a home beyond words, too. And that's an important thing. As a poet, you know, as a person who loves language, um, words are really important. But um, words themselves have their limitations. And Teze was a place that invited me um, into something deeper than just a definition. Just a definition. How does your God look like? And and how did you make the peace with love, uh, with, with God as a gay man? Well, I, I don't know. I don't know what God looks like. Um, I suppose for you. What, well, yeah, I don't know what God looks like for me. Mm -hmm. um, I suppose what I think of is that the way I approach the question of God is to think about and um, what it means to be in question, what it means to ask questions, not as a demand. I don't think any religion or any God has to respond to any demand, but rather I think that um, something of the essence of the human yearning for connection with self, with others and with ultimate source can be found in asking questions. And I suppose that's the practice of responding to the question of God for me is to respond to the question with a question, a humble question, I hope, a question I ask of myself and a question I ask about how I act. And so that is, um, I suppose, how I, I, how I think about the, the idea and the question of God. Idea and question of God. Stay put, please. You are watching To Peace Mindedly, a podcast show featuring peaceful bridge makers. Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, uh, Twitter are just some of the social media channels where we live stream our show. You can check us out on many podcast channels iTunes, iHeartRadio, Google Play, and anywhere that you listen to your favorite shows. When you are checking us out, please make sure to leave a comment. It's one of the best way for people to, to find us. If you miss a podcast, visit Goldtune, G-O-L-T-U-N-E, goldtune.com, where you can access this podcast and previous ones as well. Goldtune is a peace journalism website that I run with the help of a talented editors and correspondents. So make sure to visit us. And when you visit goldtune.com, please sign up for our, for our newsletter.
And of course, feel free to submit your questions and comments here on, on our social media channels. If you enjoyed today's show, you definitely won't want to miss next week's show. We are talking with the authors of Muslim Women Are Everything. The book is written in the same style as the Good Night Stories for Rebel Girls, centered around inspirational women all over the world, past and present. This book, however, focuses on 46 Muslim women who have made an impact in different domains such as dance, politics, business, and history. Yasmin is an Amy Award journalist, a Pulitzer Prize finalist, and medical physician. And Azim is a cartoonist, illustrator, and someone whose work has been featured in many international media networks. With International Women's Day around the corner, we are delighted to have the opportunity to speak to an eminent scholar on women's movement in the Maghreb, the Maghreb region, Morocco, Tunisia, Algeria. Uh, Fatima Sadiqi is president of Association for Middle East Women's Studies, or AMUSE for short. She is also a professor of linguistic and gender studies. Joining her is Eileen Marie Tripp, professor of politics, gender, and women's studies at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. She recently released her new book called Seeking Legitimacy, Why Arab Autocracies Adopt Women's Rights. I'm reading the book and really remind me of so many of the works that has been done in, in, in the Middle East. The Tuesday after, we are talking to Medina Tenur Whiteman, author of Invisible Muslims, Journey Through Whiteness and Islam. Medina's book is gaining momentum due to its honesty and the fact converts can relate to her experience. She has worked for many prominent publications before being pushed by her publisher to write a book. We will talk with Medina about whiteness, Muslim and being convert in the in the religion of Islam. Back to this hour, we are talking to Padraig Otoma, poet, theologian, and traveler who writes extensively about language, power, conflict, and religion. He is a master storyteller and host of On Being's Poetry Unbound. Previously, he was the leader of the Corimila community, Ireland's oldest peace and reconciliation organization. His book, in the shelter, finding a home in the world is out now in, in paperback. Do also check out his other books. So uh, one of the new books that is, is just came out, co-authored with Glenn Jordan, is Border and Belonging, the book of Ruth. And also, I think there are also another book is coming out, Feed the Beast. It's a provisional uh, title for the book, and, and we still do not know exactly. Is this a title, uh, Padre? Is this that going will be, to be the, the title, title, yeah. That will be out in the autumn time of 2022. That's a book of poetry. Book of poetry. Okay, Patrick, which one came to you first, God or words? <laughs> um, words, I think, yeah. Uh, ultimately, I suppose, like the evolution of words in humankind and the evolutions of words in children is a desire to describe what's all around and what is observable beginning with the most fundamental food, perhaps, or more, or no, or all of those things. So words, I suppose, were, were primary. 
then... why poets are just so good with words <laughs> why what what do they do what is the style what is the technique why they can just march a bunch of words so beautifully that i mean what what's what's the what's the magic no not the magic the, mm. the right word what is the yeah for the sake i mean for the lack of a better term i'm going to say magic but what's 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 their secret what's there, your secret there is, there is no secret there is the an idea for a poem and then there are the months and months and months of revision of that poem and so it's tell rare. me more tell me it, more Padre. it's rare that you write a poem and think great it's done fantastic that happened to me once i have one poem where i can go i can recite it if you like and that yes. happened yes, to me once yes yes please recite it but most of the poems take months of revision. The poem that came to me, I was sitting at the gates of Trinity College Dublin and I had an envelope in my back pocket and a pencil and I wrote it on the, pen, on the envelope. The poem is called In Between the Sun and Moon. In between the sun and moon, I sit and watch and make some room for letting light and twilight mingle, shaping hope and making single glances last eternity and a little more, extending love beyond the door of welcoming, while wedding all the parted peoples, even sons to violent mothers, and searching all the others, finding light where twilight lingers, in between the sun and moon. Beautiful. And yes. even though that came at once, for years, maybe even decades before I wrote that poem, I had been sketching Anywhere I could, sitting in a meeting where I was bored, I would sketch a sun and a moon and a tiny little boat in between the two. So partly while the poem came at once, I think it took 20 years to arrive also. Absolutely. I, I believe you. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, what does being a queer man means to you? Uh, and then how do you reflect your love of men in your poems? Um, so being a gay man, being part of the queer community, I suppose um, partly it's just a basic fact of life <laughs> um, for me in terms of who I choose to have as a partner. But uh, but deeper than that, I suppose the po the political awareness of that has been that I grew up in an era where societally amongst other men, other boys, um, and on a religious level, I was told that I was some kind of a failure as a man or some kind of a failure as a moral person. And so there is an immediate politic about the experience of that. That doesn't mean that there's anything intrinsically moral or virtuous about being gay. You can be a horrible person and be a gay man. Um, uh, but there is, I think, an invitation in any experience where in a structural level you're excluded, there's an invitation to reflect on that, hopefully find some fortitude, but also then to reflect in as much as I have received prejudice, how also am I passing that on to other people? And so for me, that is the invitation in being part of the LGBTQ community. Invitation. And, yeah. And how does it manifest itself in my poetry? Um, sometimes it does. I have a few poems that are, I suppose, imaginative poems. Um, I'm very interested in the question of masculinities. Feed the Beast is a reflection in many ways on being told I had a devil in me and then thinking about what are the devils that I had in me, devils of, a, devils of desire, devils of trying to fit in, devils of masculinity and how was I feeding those beasts? What were their hungers and 
did I satisfy their hungers well or did I satisfy their hungers with fruitless things? What would you like us to know about uh, In the Shelter? In the Shelter is a an homage really to, to books um, throughout most of the chapters in it. There are references to poems and books that I love. I suppose particularly Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings, I read it 15 times from the age of 15 to 30. Over and over I read it. Um, and it is a very important book for me. And I suppose it shows in Why a way is it an important book? I, I love the I love the great sweep of it. Um I love the imagination of Tolkien, um, because Tolkien invented languages, which I thought was fascinating. It's a very visual book. Um it's not a book without its faults, of course. But I, I think there was something really interesting in his imagination, the great saga of it, as well as that at the culmination there was still grief afterwards. And I always found that very moving. I think most people have seen the film, so or the film, so at the end you realise that the destroying of the ring doesn't actually put an end to all sadness and some people still carry sadness with them. And I, I think there's a lot of wisdom in the, in the context of that book. And so while this book is a wrestling with the question of literature from scripture, it's also a question of the embracing of literature from poetry and novels and books that I've read and films that I've seen. And it's a way within which we live storied lives and that stories that we love go into us and we can treat those stories like they are sacred to us because we live our life in conversation with those stories. Where is home for you? Um, where is home for me? Home is many places. It is Ireland. Um, it is in an airport travel lounge. <laughs> I do love travel. Um, it's with Paul, my partner. Um, it is with friends. It is being alone. It is reading a book of poetry. It is uh, cooking meals for friends coming. It is uh, me and Paul. We run together a, um, a storytelling event and it's our planning for that, our running of that and our reflection afterwards. It's it's car trips we take together. Um, it's the wrestle, too, about the question of politics, uh, being Irish in 2021. There's a home in that. It is language speaking in Irish, speaking in English, learning more. Yeah, I'm, I feel lucky that um, the kind of anxiety and the, I don't mean diagnosable anxiety, but an existential anxiety that I feel like I was born with and that pushed me through my 20s and in many ways in the shelter is an engagement with that existential anxiety about what does it mean to be in the world. I don't think everything's solved, but I do feel like um, that writing that book helped me to find new ways to live with those ex existential angsts. And home in peace, a home in silence. You, all, you also mentioned home in silence. Is there a passage or a part of the book that you would like us to know? Well, of, um, the book itself, I have to say, the book itself is beautiful. The prose is beautiful. Which which area you think that you are just so fascinated by yourself, the language, <laughs> the words, everything? Well, I suppose for me, the, the thing that I'd like to highlight in the book is like a chorus line that goes through the whole book, which is hello. Um, and 
the the whole way throughout the book, I might be describing an experience of sadness or an experience of wonderment or an experience of prejudice or an experience of a way within which I've been horrible. And I just use the word, the phrase, hello to, hello to limitation, hello to sadness, hello to lessons learned again, hello to telling the same story, hello to unexpected surprises, hello to the prejudice at the heart of surprise. So using the function of this chorus line of hello is a certain kind of stitching together of the book, putting all of these stories together in a kind of a hospitality that postures me, I suppose, as trying to say hello to these things. If I have a prayer practice at all, it is to in silence in the morning to sit, to to look um, and then to think about the day and to say hello to everything that I know is going to come from the day and hello too to all the surprises and to hope that whenever I'm surprised during the day, disappointed or delighted, that I can greet those things, greet the unexpected nature of those things with a certain kind of equanimity that will open me up to the possibility of those rather than um, holding on to my original idea about what the day should be. So when there is hello, it's coming and you are receiving. Are you also letting it go? Yeah, is there a goodbye? <laughs> yeah, um, I suppose saying hello in this way is is saying hello to what's there, saying hello to the lack of certainty. And that, in a certain sense, is letting attachments slip away. Um, I think all of the great meditation and religious traditions of the world have a, a focus on the question of attachment, a focus on the question of, is your relationship with what you expect, is that ordered or disordered? Is it addictive in nature? If things don't go the way you expect them to go, do you fall apart and shout at people or does everything fall apart for you? And how can you find a posture, a poise, a choreography in the question of how you live your life in a way that can open you up to having plans, sure, but finding a way to not let those changing plans devastate your day. And in a way, then, will you devastate the days of other people by communicating your lack of capacity to cope with change? Yes. Excellent. Stay put, please. For this hour, we talked to Padraig Otoma, poet, theologian, peacemaker, and author of In the Shelter, Finding a Home in the World. Sometimes soon we should ask ourselves, where is home for us, I believe? Where is home for us? Migration, displacement are modern life problems throughout the world. Home is a place to be found and the meaning of home is different for each one of us. If you are home, cherish it. It is like drinking a glass of warm milk at night, taking a warm, pleasant bath, watching the silence of snow falling on the earth. And as Podrick just explained, there are so many layers and so many imaginations of where is really home and where we can find ourselves inside our home. At the end of every hour, it's the signature for our show that we ask our guests to share something meaningful about peace, about kindness and compassion. I'm sure Padraig has lots and lots to share, but I wonder what is your, your prayer, your poem, your, your statement about peace? My, my hope and the thing that I try to live into is the possibility of um, curious encounter 
where the people we know and the people we meet, where we can have unexpected conversations with each other and that unexpected conversations where we hear uh, an experience from their life that they may not have shared with us before or that we not, may not have been open to being able to hear that we find ways to ask um, open-hearted, curious questions and hear the stories that come in response to that. Um, Often there's this um, impetus towards diversity, diversity, and I think that's great. But um, if that's just being done as a way where we think I'm going to grab people that I think are diverse and bring them into the room and get them to perform their story for me, that isn't human encounter, that's manipulation. I think when a community that thinks it's all the same can realize we're not the same, we're different. We think and believe and have survived different things. Therefore, when it comes to meeting people far beyond that community, there's an understanding that diversity is everywhere, not just in our fantasy about who the diverse people are. I'm finding a, a pathway through story into the diversity that's already around us and the diversity that's already within us as individuals. That, I think, can open us up to all kinds of other stories around us. Yes, so you can find Podrick's books in many places, including goldtone.com. There are quite a few books. So In the Shelter is one of the one that we were talking about. Also, Order and Belongings, the, the Book of Ruth, and also Feed the Beast. So these are three books are coming out. And I mean, you are, you are quite a busy writer it's 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 amazing it's amazing thank you so much for joining us and appreciate sharing your thoughts share for the office